At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 502nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is building her community of farms one yard at a time. We're talking with Ali Borovic about networking small yard farms. Allie, was born in Houston, Texas, and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Not on farms, but always around food. She spent her college years in New York City playing volleyball, studying politics, food, and public health. In 2017, she fell in love with farming at the Farmer Training Program in Burlington, Vermont. A year later, she was growing vegetables and some animals at Stone Barns Center for Food and Agriculture outside New York City. Just this past spring, Allie moved to Austin, Texas to start Neighbor Food, a neighborhood-based network of small yard farms. Currently, she has three yards in production and is selling her produce to restaurants and markets around the city. Allie started Neighbor Food as a way to feed people, build communities, and combat climate change. Welcome to the show today, Allie. Are you ready to rock? Absolutely. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah. So it all kind of started my first job in high school. And that job was working in a restaurant called Trolley Stop Market in Memphis. And it was owned by farmers, which is super unique for a restaurant, I think. And it doubled as a farmer's market. And so I was kind of exposed to growing, to restaurants, to how people eat food, to where food comes from. And that carried over to my time at NYU um, in college. And I studied politics, food, and public health, like my bio said, and dove even deeper into all that is food and everything that goes into it. And I ended up working in restaurants, mainly front of house, and like serving and waitressing and whatnot. And I was actually diagnosed with Lyme disease, I don't know, like four or five years ago. And got super sick, had to sleep a lot more, and had to quit working in restaurants. And I decided that farming could be potentially both healing and educational. And so I went to the farmer training program in Burlington, Vermont, and just fell in love with growing food and farming and being outside all the time and feeding people. And since then, my body has mostly healed from Lyme. And yeah, now we're here today. Wow. So... One thing you don't know, unless you've listened to a lot of my podcasts, is that both Heidi, my sweetheart, and I have Lyme. So we've been... I actually remember that. Yeah. I did listen to one of those podcasts. Yeah. yeah. We've been dealing with that. So it's a fun process. Yeah. yeah. Certainly. Exactly. One way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So what got you to Austin? Well, I'm originally from Houston. That's where I was born. That's where my dad is from. My parents lived there for a while. And we lived in Austin for 
whole nine months when I was in first grade. Uh, we moved from Houston to Austin, and I just fell in love with it. And then we unfortunately had to move to Memphis, which is so cool, but not quite as cool as Austin. And I've always been pining for Austin. So I finally convinced my husband to take the move south. And here we are. Nice. And so you've just been there for six or eight months. Yeah, yeah, about six or seven months now. Wow, congratulations, because I hear Austin is a really cool place. It is. I love it. There's so much water. Well, I mean, not rain, but there's a lot of, like, lakes and cool swimming holes, and it's lovely. And the good food movement there. Yes, definitely. There are a lot of urban farms and farmer's markets and restaurants doing cool things. So how did you come up with this idea for neighbor food? So it... All kind of started, I'd say about a year ago when I was working at Stone Barns and Stone Barns was great. I had an excellent experience, but I was frustrated with not having more autonomy over my decisions in farming and having one year of educational farming experience at the farmer training program at UVM and then one year of production farming experience. I wanted to try and like find out if some of my ideas were going to work. And so I wanted my own land originally, but then my husband is a software engineer, so he needs to live in a city and land in cities is really expensive. <laughs> and right. I didn't want to just go buy like 10 acres in the city because I like, can't. And <laughs> that seems like way too much overhead to start just to like trial my ideas. So I was in Austin a couple of years ago and I realized that there are a lot of yards here and people water their yards. And that seemed outrageous to me because the yard <laughs> right. isn't doing anything. <laughs> and we have like water restrictions here, as I'm sure you'll do there in Arizona. And it doesn't rain a lot. I, we were talking earlier and I said it rained for the first time in like three months here today. So in my head, I was like, well, why can't I grow things that people can eat? I'll still have to water them a little bit, but I can water them at night when there's less evaporation and it can be something that like people can actually consume. So I started researching it last year and found Curtis Stone in Canada and then Fleet Farming in Orlando. And they were kind of two models that I based my own business model off of. Awesome. And how are you finding it farming as a young woman in Austin. How's that process working? Yeah, well, first I'll say that <laughs> I've had one person tell me, this wasn't in Austin, it's actually in New York. I told someone last year in New York I was a farmer, and they told me that I shouldn't be a farmer because it's a man's job. Oh, um, my God. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> okay, all right. I well, don't agree with that at all, but sure, whatever you think. So, yeah, but overall, in New York and in Austin, it's been it's been really good. Yeah. The farmers here in Austin specifically are so kind and passionate and supportive. David, who's from Eden East, I think you had him on your podcast. Yes. He's incredible. I live like next door to him and he has been so supportive. So yeah, it hasn't, I wouldn't say there's been too much of a difference between farming as a man or a woman in Austin, just because the farming scene here is really tight and kind of small, but small in a good way. Nice. And how do you go about finding yards? Actually, let me step back from that a little bit. Tell me what yeah. the structure of your business looks like. Do you want me to tell you like how it starts? Like what it looks like when people tell me they're interested or sure. what like the behind the scenes structure is? We'll do both of them, but the first start with the first one. Okay. So when someone comes to me or emails me or messages me on Instagram saying they're interested, I have a form on my website that they can fill out that gives me just a bunch of in background information that I can kind of screen them and screen the yards without having to waste my time going to a bunch of plots because people are actually really interested in the idea. And I've had to turn down far more plots than I thought I would just because of time management for myself 
or like different factors that wouldn't make the plot a good form for me. So I send them that link. They fill it out. If it's going to be a good fit, I go and I visit the plot with them. We talk. I give them the whole spiel about how it works. And then they, I send them a memorandum of understanding. And that just outlines, I actually adapted it from Curtis Stone's MOU. And that outlines what hours I'll be there, what kind of noise they can expect, how many dollars in vegetables they'll be getting in return, kind of the whole process so that there are no surprises in a couple months. And it's not legally binding, but it just helps get everyone on the same page. And then from there, I either tarp to kill the grass, um, if it's like an in-between kind of season and it's not great for planting immediately, or I BCS and then, or sod cut and the BCS, depending on what the yard is, compost, set up irrigation, and then plant. You said BCS? Yes. What does that mean? I don't actually know what it stands for, but it's a small walk-behind tractor that I actually rent from Home Depot because I haven't fully invested in buying my own. I can't decide which one I want or how much I actually need to use it. So I just rent it from Home Depot by like four-hour increments, and it's pretty affordable. Got it. So BCS is some kind of tiller or tractor thing. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to be more no-till in the beginning, but I found that opening up after sod, especially if I need to open it up within like a couple weeks, I really, I haven't found another way. Maybe there are other ways, but it seems to be the best way so far. Right. Well, and I've found, I've been growing food here in Phoenix for over 40 years, and I found that when we're starting with a brand new bed, we have <laughs> to, because the soil is so dense here, we have to do some tilling to kind of start yeah. fluffing it up. So that sounds to me like you're on top of that. Yeah, exactly. And so then after I'm in my second phase of planting right now, where like I planted in the spring and I'm planting again for the fall, and I'm not ECSing this time. I'm just composting on top, and it seems to be working okay. Nice. Yeah, that, that's what I do here at the Urban Farm is the only time I dig in the garden beds is if I'm removing a noxious weed like Bermuda or nutgrass or harvesting. The rest of the time, I'm just adding compost right on top and planting again, and that seems to yeah, work. Yeah. yeah, that works really well. So you have three different yards that you're farming. What kind of experience are you having with the the residents of the spaces that, that you're farming at? Tell me about that interaction. So one of them is my yard, which we're renting right now, and we're actually going to be moving soon. But my landlords are awesome. Like, they live next door and could not be more down for anything I do to the yard. So I have ripped up the sod in the front and planted things. And then they actually have already had raised beds in their backyard. So I'm growing Malabar spinach currently in those raised beds. But those are the only raised beds I'm doing. And so that's been great because it's mainly my space and they're down for anything. The other two yards are both currently friends of friends or friends of friends of friends, Mm -hmm. mainly word of mouth. And they've been incredible. One of them is a builder herself. And so she like redoes houses and is really designy and crafty. And so she totally understands everything that I need to do to her yard. You know, I had to put tarp on the yard to kill it for two or three months. And she, you know, didn't bat an eye, even though I had these like ugly brown tarps in her front yard. So yeah, it's been pretty good with those. I had some not so great experiences, I'll say, (laughs) earlier on in the spring. But right now, the yards that I have and the landowners are really great. Well, and it's a big part of it's all about developing that relationship. And, you know, if you have an experience that's not so great, you don't need to go there again. Right, exactly. 
Yeah, and the ones that weren't so great, I just viewed it as a business learning experience and glad that I got out of there sooner rather than later. And yeah, moved on. There are always ought to always be more people who are wanting me to use their lawn. So oh yeah. I, I don't do anything close to that. And once or twice a month, I get phone calls or emails from people here in Phoenix that say, hey, you got anybody that wants to farm my yard? Yeah, exactly. So what is your biggest challenge farming yards? I would say I have two challenges. And one of them is shade. There are a lot of trees in Austin, which is great because it keeps our houses cooler. So you have to use less AC and whatnot. And it's really pretty. But... There's a lot of shade in people's yards, and a lot of the trees are huge, and the city won't let you remove them. And, I mean, I don't want to remove them, but even if I could, I couldn't. And it prohibits me from farming a lot of people's yards just because not enough light gets to it. Right. And then the other challenge is just the size of the plots. They've been a lot smaller than I anticipated them being, and mainly that's because I think, like, my hunch is, that Austin is crazy expensive right now and is going through a huge housing boom and everyone's trying to subdivide their lots. And so lots are just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Like one reason we're moving out of the house we're renting right now is because the, our landowners or, or like landlords are building two houses in our backyard. So wow. Austin just kind of keeps getting smaller and smaller in terms of the size of plots. And it would be better for my business, like efficiency-wise, if I could have bigger plots and fewer of them instead of smaller plots and more of them. I hear you on the plots getting smaller and smaller. The same kind of thing is happening here in Phoenix. It's one of our challenges. How do you find land to grow food on? And, you know, you, you've got a unique way of looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just getting more complicated, but we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Right. This is what we get to figure out. This is part of our process to figure it out. So what are you doing yeah. with your produce? So my initial plan was to get a stand at one of the farmer's markets in Austin. There's this great farmer's market that I go to every week. I love it. It's a perfect size. It's at Mueller Market. And I really wanted to stall there. And my plan was to grow produce to sell it at that market, but I, through a series of events in the spring and my husband and I deciding to start a family and me getting pregnant, things didn't work out quite as planned and I didn't get quite as much done and a couple of plots fell through early on and so I didn't have as much produce and as much like regular supply of produce that I would need to have a market stand. So what I've been doing this summer is selling to restaurants directly, just depending on what I have that week, and selling to certain value-added farmers and their businesses. So there's a farmer, Ryan, he runs F-Stop Farm, and they do kimchi and all sorts of ferments. And so I've been selling a bunch of my produce to him so that he can ferment them. And then I've actually been selling to David, who you talk to at Eden East. They have a market twice a week, and he has been awesome, like I said, and so supportive, and he has been buying a bunch of my produce to then resell Oh, beautiful. That's one of the things that I found when I was actually doing market farming 20-some years ago while I was in college. I just made friends with several chefs and took them whatever I had, and they just loved it. So that's always a good solution as well. Yeah, yeah. And the restaurant scene here in Austin is so wild and crazy in a good way. But everyone wants local produce and to say it's becoming the cool thing to say that you have produce from a local farm. So it's all part of it. What do the neighbors get? What do the landowners get out of this process? Yeah, so it's a very similar situation to what I ideally had in mind and then what actually happens, which happens a lot in farming and is kind of expected. <laughs> so my plan was to have 
have the landowners come to my market stand and pick up the produce that was from their yard and aggregated from other people's yards so that I didn't have to run a delivery service like on top of running a farm. And that obviously didn't happen because I didn't end up having a market stand. So instead what I've been doing, because I'm all, I only have three yards right now, I am harvesting, aggregating, washing, and then delivering some produce every week that I'm growing things to the landowners. And they probably get between $10 and $20 worth of produce a week when I'm growing things. And I actually took off half of July and all of August from growing because it's just so hot here. Yeah, as it is in Phoenix. The, the best time to grow here in Phoenix is October 1st to about May 31st. So I hear you on that one. Yeah. Excellent. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. So we kind of talked about this, or I hinted at this earlier, but a time that I failed, or at least felt like I failed, was this previous spring when I took on a plot of land that wasn't totally sold on. It was a little far away. I was a little hesitant of my relationship with the landowner just because they didn't live there full time. They were only there a couple of weeks a year, and which seems like it would be a good situation, but it made me hesitant for whatever reason. And so I took on the yard mainly because it had already been set up. So the ground had already been broken. Irrigation was set up. There just wasn't anything planted. So I thought it would be a great opportunity for me to get going. I planted some carrots and beets. I didn't have the landowner sign a memorandum of understanding because they didn't live there full time. I hadn't ever really met them in person, and I just thought it would be okay, naively. And they ended up having a family emergency and wanting me to leave immediately after about me farming there for two and a half or three months. I was I was a couple weeks away from harvesting carrots and beets, and I just got this email telling me that they had had this emergency and they needed me to not come back and that our relationship was over. And that was so hard to hear because I was so close to harvesting my first crop, and I yeah just felt so frustrated by like the breakdown in our relationship and by me also not getting on better terms with them in the beginning. But I guess I overcame that by talking to my husband and my mom a lot and chalking it up mainly, like I said earlier, as a business learning experience. And it's better that I got out of there earlier rather than later so that I didn't lose more crops. And yeah, I think that's what I learned too, was mainly that the relationship with the landowner is really important. Yeah. Well, in the memorandum of understanding, that's huge right there. That that outlines pretty much everything that you need to address, I would guess, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like I said, it's not legally binding, so it's not like I would have had action to take against them, but I think it would have gotten us on a better page so that they knew that that wasn't allowed necessarily. Even though it's their land, like they need to give me, you know, at least a couple months heads up so that I can finish harvesting what I planted. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever figure out what happened? I did, yeah, but... And it probably had nothing to do with you. Yeah, nothing, nothing to do with me at all. <laughs> I wasn't involved in it at all, but yeah, just an unfortunate situation. Yeah, and what do you consider your biggest success? My biggest success is, I guess, kind of vague, but just growing food. I love growing food for people, and whether it's growing it on my own this past couple months in Austin or at Stone Barns or the year before, like I've just gotten so hooked on growing food for people and for myself that any day I can be doing that is. A good day. day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I said a good day. You said an awesome day at the same time. 
Yeah. I hear you on that. I got to, uh, you know, I spend most of my time in front of a computer with the podcast and the online school and all this writing that I do. And so I hear you. At any day that you can get out in the yard and make food happen or prep for food happening, it's, yeah, it's an awesome day. Yeah, absolutely. And what drives you? What's your big why in the world? Really feeding and nourishing both myself and other people with food either I grow or even just food I get from other farmers. Through my experience with Lyme and really learning that nourishing myself and taking care of myself first is how I'm going to be able to keep doing this work and keep feeling better is the most important thing. And I think that farming is such a unique thing because I can nourish myself and feed myself through it. Um, but I can also nourish others. And that is really cool to me. Yeah, that is cool. Good on you. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? It would be Leah Penniman's book that just came out last year, I think, Farming While Black. And although I'm not black, I'm very much white, but I think it's the only, definitely the only book I've ever read, which I haven't read every book, but I read a lot of the farming books. And it's the only one that combines like farming how-tos with the farming like injustices and political injustices that have infiltrated and are so important to understanding the part of the matter of like our health crises and food crises in the United States. And that coupled with her really knowledgeable and insightful how-tos and history of farming is pretty incredible. Nice. You know that she was on the podcast. Yes, I listened to that episode and fangirled so hard. She yeah. is so cool. She is cool. It was episode 414 back in Jan- uh, oh January of this year, so just uh, a few months ago. Yeah. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I would say to choose one food that you eat regularly and love and find out where it's grown, who grows it, how it grows, what are the conditions it grows in, all of the things. And you'll unearth so much more than you ever thought you would. And that's how I got on this journey mainly was, like I said, through my first job at Kimberly Step Market in Memphis, but also through that. And just, I decided to learn where baby carrots came from because I just couldn't understand how they were real. And turns out they're not. But right. I think it can take you down a really interesting journey and discovering a really cool information that can help you look at the world through different lenses. Amen. And where do baby carrots come from? Well, <laughs> they're big carrots. Use a bunch of water to cut them down. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? I saw videos on that yeah. one day of them taking big carrots and just, you know, kind of slicing them and dicing them and making them small. <laughs> right. It's crazy. And then we pay for money and put them in plastic bags. I don't know. I mean, I was a consumer of them for a while. I love them because they're convenient and whatnot. But I don't know, once you unearth what actually happens, it makes it hard to buy them <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Right. So you also mentioned, I'm going to go on an, uh, an aside here. You also mentioned you're pregnant. Congratulations. Thank you. You have a challenge coming up around feeding your little one. How are you going to, yeah. <laughs> how are you going to manage that? 
We'll see. I have a plan in my head. Like I said, so many of these things with neighbor food, I have a plan and I'm very much a planner and I write everything down and plan things out, but things always change farming as in life. And right now my husband and I are thinking I'm going to farm as much as I can until this little thing comes out at the end of January or February. And he's been helping out a lot whenever I feel too tired or I'm nauseous or whatnot. So he's been a huge help the past couple of months and going forward. And I haven't scaled up neighbor food anymore because of this. So I could take on probably, I have the bandwidth for about two to three more yards, but I'm keeping it manageable and like almost at a part time right now because of this impending small child coming into yeah. the world. And I don't want to get too overworked and too busy to then have to let people down because it's other people's land. So I can, it's harder to pull out of other people's land. So the plan is for me to take mainly January, February, and March off, and my husband will help me or do the like feeding in the greenhouses for the summer, and I'll take those months off pretty much completely of farming. That's the plan right now. I may take less, I may take more, depending on how I feel, and then go from there, and I want to strap this little baby on me and <laughs> carry on. That's my plan, but we'll see what him or her has in mind. Nice. And well, and the, the question was more specifically, what are you going to feed the little one? How are you going to do that? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that too. I'm planning on exclusively breastfeeding. We'll see how that goes. I am really into the Weston A. Price diet. My friend Austin got me into that last year. And so I, baby's first foods will be egg yolks and chicken liver. Oh, interesting. Because... <laughs> Those are the most nutrient-dense foods you can feed a baby, um, and they can digest them really easily. We're going to start with that, and then they're going to be eating all the vegetables. That's that's the plan. Yeah, that's kind of where I was thinking you were going. You were going to actually make your own baby food from the vegetables you're growing. Yeah, yeah, very much so. That's, yeah, some time out. I don't think we introduced it until like six months. I don't know. Not a mom yet. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. Making my own baby food, absolutely, with all the things I grow. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ali. Yeah, thank you. How can our listeners find you and find out more information about what you're up to? So on all social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, I'm most active on Instagram. Our handle is Eat Neighbor Food. Neighbor Food was actually already taken, funny enough. So it's just Eat Neighbor Food on all three of those. And then they can email me. Allie, A-L-L-I-E, at eatneighborfood.com. Beautiful. And so your website would be eatneighborfood.com. Right. Excellent. That's that too. Excellent. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash neighborfood. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, 
head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.